I would like to turn, first of all, to John 16 this morning. John chapter 16. I would like to read verses 1 through 15. 1 through 15. Listen carefully to the holy, infallible word of God. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. For if I go... I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin in righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they did not believe in me concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now if you would please turn over to one verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We read earlier from verses 14 and 15, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now to the text in terms of our series from 2 Timothy 3.16 and 7 verse 17. Once again, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, help us to see this morning the need for righteousness, the need for a true righteousness that only comes from the being who is truly righteous, manifest, apply by thy spirit, the righteousness of Christ unto each one of us here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. In our message last week, we noted that the phrase training, instruction, discipline in righteousness, used here in our text by Paul, had pervasive use in the Greek and Roman world with respect to the training and securing of a virtuous culture in education, society, as well as the state. We focused upon the educational component, which lays the foundation of a virtuous culture and state. For our purposes, we accented the Greek and Roman virtue of justice. Since it corresponds to the English word translated righteousness in our text, they wanted people to be upright, honest, fair, righteous, on the basis of their own human viewpoint. This humanistic model of justice and righteousness found in Greek and Roman education is not, is not Paul's interest to Timothy or for Timothy. What do I mean by this? Paul is not attempting in this text to establish a model for Christian day schools or Christian homeschooling? Or is he interested in Christianizing secular public education? His concern here is not to provide a substitute for the educational academy or to transform the educational academy. In other words, we cannot infer or deduce from this text that Paul is attempting to substitute or transform the academic ethos of the secular educational academy in the ancient world. In this text, Paul is being extremely practical and realistic. Converts are going to be coming into the church Many of them will have been educated in those secular Greek 
and Roman models. In the post-apostolic age, in the church, Timothy ministers, God's saving grace will place the believer in an entirely, entirely different environment and realm. What is that different environment and realm? Well, it's not the realm of competition, substitution, or transformation in relationship to the secular world. Rather, it is a realm that has its own covenant identity. Underline that. Own covenant identity. And yet its antithesis is marked out with respect to the Greek and Roman model. Let's get specific. What is this radical realm and environment that Timothy and his ministry must embrace? It's the church. It's the church. The sanctuary of the Lord. Even more specifically, it is the church as she stands in the presence of Christ. Now we are at the heart of training in righteousness. You are in the presence of Christ as a person who is in dire need to be right with God. So once again, let me begin with who trained Timothy in righteousness. Going back to verse 15. It was his mother, Eunice and grandmother, Lois, Chapter 1, verse 5. Do you realize the impact of that statement in and of itself in the world at that time? In distinct contrast to the Greek and Roman father model, two women instructed their child in righteousness. Specifically, Paul reminds Timothy of Eunice and Lois used the Holy Scriptures as the tool that brought Timothy to the wisdom of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 3.15 of our, of our text. Now, is Paul setting a normative standard here? For the Christian home, that is, that women are the educators at the home? Not at all. Not at all. As he tells the Ephesians in 6.4 of Ephesians, that the fathers also are very, very principal figures in terms of the education in the Christian home. So that is not his point here. The issue here is pastoral. Eunice. Timothy's mother was a believer. But if you recall, Timothy's father 
was most likely not a believer. Acts 16.1. In the pastoral situation, a marriage between a Jewish convert to the faith and a Greek unbeliever demands that his introduction, instruction, and nurture in the Christian faith must come in covenant from a believing parent. In this case, his mother and also his grandmother. If you know our form of government in the OPC, we say that if a person, if a child is born in a home which has one believing parent and one unbelieving parent, that child is still to be baptized, have the sign of the covenant. That's pastoral instruction. That's the reality of life in many, many cases. So, with this pastoral advice before us, there is nothing wrong for the woman to educate their children in the Holy Scriptures concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, as we see here, in terms of Paul's relationship with Timothy, it is encouraged. It is encouraged. After all, Paul has placed you in a different realm. You have been placed in a transcendent realm that is above and beyond the Greek and Roman culture, which is earthly. Therefore, for the believer, for the believer, we educate starting from heaven for heaven. So crucial. The child is baptized in the sign and seal of Christ's death and resurrection, having the sign and seal of being in union with Christ in the heavenly places. That's the sign and seal. Your children have already, in terms of the sign and seal of baptism, have already been seen as having their identity in heaven. That should put a pretty solid viewpoint upon you (laughs) concerning your children and who they are. That's why we say here they're immediately enrolled as non-communicable members. They are members of the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't underestimate that. Don't downplay that. So from the very beginning, the very beginning, they are set apart they are set apart in the covenant community to be children who are always moving now for heaven 
because now they have the sign and seal through the death and resurrection of Christ that they have, they have that heavenly presence. Keep in mind here, keep in mind, do not get confused. They are understood as part of the visible church. We're not talking here about the invisible church per se. So it's a beautiful concept. You see the the women are not interested in having Timothy trained in righteousness by the Roman state. It is not Eunice and Lois's purpose and goal to make their child a good citizen for the sake of the state. No, the serious and supreme interest of Eunice and Lois to use Paul's words to the Philippian church is that Timothy be a citizen of heaven. Philippians 3.20 Are you training your children to be citizens of heaven? Do you look at them in terms of their baptism as already citizens of heaven? makes a whole difference in terms of how you will train and raise your children if you see this concept and apply it. Furthermore, what Paul wants to bring to our attention is that Eunice and Lois instructed Timothy in the context and content of the covenant. What is the context of the covenant in this case? It is home and church. What is the content of the covenant in this case? It's the revelational truth found in the Holy Scriptures. This is what this passage is all about. You talk about antithesis in the, con- in the covenant context. It is truly wonderful, truly wonderful situation to have women who love and cherish every word in Scripture and who understand how all Scripture is centered in Jesus Christ. Teach Instruct, educate, discipline, and tutor their own children as well as the covenant children in Christ's church in terms of the eternal matters of life in the gospel. Don't we rejoice in this congregation of those who have volunteered and come forward? Most of them women to teach in our Sunday school program. Isn't it wonderful to see that that is on their heart, to see the covenant children in the church, which we make a comment about when a child is baptized. Are you going to pray with the parents to help train them? There you go. And as you know, we need more people yet. 
help train our children in terms of those covenant blessings. Indeed, in the gospel. Moreover, do not miss this. In their lives, Eunice and Lois submitted their own instruction and lives to the preaching of the word. You see, Paul sees the instruction of the word of God in the covenant home as a complement to the necessity, necessity and centrality of the instruction of the preached word in the church. As far as Paul is concerned, the believer must be in church where the scriptures are already clearly being preached to make one wise unto salvation. Because such instruction has a glorious end in purpose to equip you with every good work as you are placed in the presence of Christ and his eternal kingdom forever and ever. The end, the end is not the state. The end is not the pursuit and false gratification of human design, moral platitudes. Just be a good person. The end is eternal communion with the reigning incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ, to whom the Holy Scriptures testifies from beginning to end. Is that not the longing of your religious heart, the core of your religious being? We pray, often we get these requests from our families. We pray for a deeper relationship and reflection of Christ in our lives each day. Do we really mean it? will look no further than putting into practice the words of Paul to Timothy here in 3.15 through 4.2 upon the foundation of Christ's blessedness to the church, the home, and the true believer. So how, how have you spent the last week after last week's message? Have you during this week hungered and thirst after righteousness for Christ and his kingdom? Matthew 5, 6, the words of Christ himself. And have you during this week, have you found satisfaction in that blessedness to you his church, in those words. Have you been satisfied? Or did Christ's words last week go in one ear and out the other as you walked out the door? Training in righteousness 
congregation. We are not dealing here with evaluating justice and righteousness on the basis of what I judge to be right and just. We are not dealing here with societal and cultural norms of virtue that, perv- that pervades that the whole culture and the society. No, once again, Paul's concern is not academic disciplines in the academy. His concern is about the education, about an education that places all of us right in the presence of God. You need to understand that Paul is concerned about the spiritual and eternal welfare of Timothy and the church of Jesus Christ. We must set our minds upon the things that are above, not earthly things, as Paul points out to the Colossian church 3, 1 and 2. Paul is confronting Timothy and the church with the very righteousness of God himself, as revealed through his holy word. Remember, only God has inalienable rights as the sovereign who freely decrees and ordains all things that come to pass. Is your heart filled with this truth? Is your heart the religious core of your very being filled with the joy and thanksgiving that righteousness comes to you, to Christ's church, as undeserved grace? Are you truly satisfied with God's righteousness, God's justice, God's equity, walking in the Lord's uprightness and the path which is straight? That is the path of righteousness. All by grace through Jesus Christ's spirit. So why is this all so important? Do you understand the relationship of the righteousness of God with his holiness in biblical revelation? In light of our sin, we are talking about the infinite gulf, the infinite gap between sinful man and the holiness and righteousness of God. When we think of the holiness of God, we think of his absolute purity, the total absence of evil and sin. No stain, no defect, no flaw in his being. God is pure. He is righteous. He is good. That is not man. Man is sinner. His being is full of stain, defect, and flaw. Indeed, unlike man, God's purity and goodness describes his holiness, whereas justice describes God's righteousness in relationship to his holiness. Congregation, where do you stand this morning before such a holy and righteous and just God? Do we not see 
the weight of Paul's concern for Timothy in this post-apostolic church, which includes each one of us who are here this morning. We must. Our eternal destiny and communion with Christ is dependent on how we answer that question. Are we answering that question in your own heart? Are you answering that question honestly? That in our union with Adam's sin, as sinners, we have no holiness and righteousness in us. That justice demands our eternal condemnation. Again, do we see the weight of Paul's concern? We, the church, need to be instructed in God's righteousness that it reflects God's holiness so that when we appear before the throne of Christ, the judge, chapter 4, verse 1, your ethical conduct will be vindicated by the judge. Justice will be served. You see, it is not a coincidence that the phrase that is before us this morning, training in righteousness, is the fourth and last phrase for Paul here. Because this final phrase places each of us right before our judge. See the impact and the flow of the text before you. So that as we are face to face, we, as we are present even now before Judge Jesus, where will the absolute necessity for God's righteousness, his holiness, come from? Congregation, it comes from the Bible because the Bible from its beginning to its end is the training and the instruction in the righteousness of God. You cannot claim the righteousness of God without being in the word. How can you know the righteousness of God without being in the word? Christ is baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew 3.15. And as an elder last week shared with me in terms of John 16.8, while in the terms of what we read this morning, we can see how Christ's own words in that passage assist us as foundational about God's righteousness. Did you notice in John 16, Christ is speaking about sending his helper. The Holy Spirit is coming to do what? Uh Uh-oh, here's that word. Our first word in terms of the phrase in 3.16 of Paul to Timothy. To convict, reproof. In three ways. In three ways. First, if you notice there in the text in John 16, the Holy Spirit is going to come and convict 
the world of sin because the world does not believe in Christ. Secondly, the Holy Spirit comes in terms of righteousness because Christ's personal life of righteousness will have departed from the earth as he has gone to his Father. And thirdly, and thirdly, the Holy Spirit comes as, as the one who brings judgment because Satan, the ruler of this world, must be judged. Verses 8 through 11 of John 16. Each of Christ's points is covered in Paul's comments to Timothy. Amazing. Concerning pastoring and preaching the word of God. As Timothy preaches and pastors into a world of unbelief, He has the Holy Spirit's God-breathed word to convict sinners of sin, declare righteousness of God in Christ's kingdom, his person, and his work on earth, and to warn the world of coming before a holy and perfect judge, Christ, who by virtue of the cross in an empty grave has crushed the head of the serpent. In judgment, the ruler of this world. Congregation, do not be fooled. Do not be fooled. Do not fall prey to the teachings of the world. No ethical instruction of a humanistic, virtuous life in the academy, culture, and the state has any lasting value in contrast to the instruction that comes from the eternal word of the Lord that is packed, found, read, devoted to you in terms of the revelation of truth in the scriptures. One last point of the scripture's practical use of training in righteousness that is absolutely imperative with respect to the truth of the gospel in your life and in the life of the ministry of the church. There is no participation for any of us in the righteousness of God in Christ without it. No one can dwell in the presence of Christ, the judge, without it. Paul presents this important point as good news in the text that I read to you this morning in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For the sake of the true believer in Christ, God made our sinless Christ to be 
imputed with our sin. What do we mean by that? Made him to be sin. Took our sin unto himself. So that in turn, we are made righteous. We are made the righteousness of God by Christ's righteous obedience being imputed and given to him. Theologians call this, in the history of Reformed thought, it is called double imputation. Double imputation in this passage. This is radical justice which the world has no idea about. God's justice of reconciliation for fallen to, han- to fallen humanity is solely achieved and secured By Christ taking our sin upon himself and his obedience of righteousness being placed on us. That's the heart and soul of the gospel for you in terms of the righteousness of God. You are vindicated by the imputed righteousness of his atoning sacrifice for you and the righteousness of God found in Christ and recorded in the Spirit's word as applied by the Holy Spirit to your heart assures your life to be the exposition, the exposition of his word in word and in deed. That is what Paul is telling Timothy there in verse 17. The word through the spirit penetrates your life so deeply that your life being in Jesus Christ and in his righteousness, your life in word to others, your word in terms of its edification to others, and your deeds that you do are the exposition of the very word of God which you live in each That's the power of the Spirit in the life of the church. This is how the Bible instructs you about righteousness. This is education that begins and ends in heaven's sanctuary. All for you. It's in Christ's church. In Christ. You are upright. Honest. Fair. And righteous. Through the power of the spirit. And his application. Of Christ and his word in your life. Let's pray.
Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, for his obedience, his active and passive obedience. There is no redemption without it. How we indeed, by thy spirit, savor this truth. We ask that you would bless us, help us each day to be satisfied with the righteousness of Christ. O Lord, bless thy people. In Christ's name, amen.